If I were to ask you, what, you th- what do you think is the greatest danger to your Christian experience, how would you answer that? Or if someone was to ask what you thought was the greatest threats to Christianity here in the United States, what would be your response? I think it's easy for us to think that the greatest threats and the biggest dangers are those that come from outside of the church. Things like a liberal government. Or maybe you would answer the question, functional atheism here in our Western culture. Where more and more people seem to be, you know, have no belief in God and, and don't believe that He exists and find, you know, just no reason whatsoever to turn to Him. Perhaps you would say, no, I think the greatest danger is extreme materialism of the Western culture that says that getting physical things and that He who has the biggest pile, you know, at the end is the one who wins. I'm sure there would be others of you who would say, no, the biggest danger is the rampant immorality in our culture that seems to be growing more and more perverse on a daily basis, where we live in this society where our morals are being assaulted constantly and where liberal and godly agendas seem to be you know, shoved down our throats at every possible opportunity. Now, I, I will admit, All of those things are threats to our Christianity, but I don't think they're the biggest threat. In fact, I think the biggest threat, the biggest danger really to your walk with God is much more subtle and much more personal than those things. In fact, I think the greatest danger really lies within our own hearts. The greatest danger, I think, is what I would call identity amnesia. It's when you and I, people who, who know Jesus, forget what it means to be in Christ. Where we forget who we are in Christ. Where we realize that it's not, we haven't just been forgiven by Jesus, but we have actually been made brand new by Jesus. That we have a brand new identity in Christ, and that brand new identity is supposed to shape everything about us all of our priorities, and all of our pursuits. And it's interesting that identity amnesia oftentimes leads to identity replacement. You see, if you're not getting your identity vertically, that's the way that we're supposed to get it from from God, then we're going to look to get our identity horizontally from others. And so we see all the time people who are finding their identity in what they do. It's their, in their career, in their profession. Or they'll find their identity in who they're connected to, their group of friends. Or maybe they'll find their identity in who they're married to as being the spouse of so-and-so. Or oftentimes parents will find their identity in their children, that they are the mother or father of so-and-so. In fact, I have seen parents come to a place of complete lostness when their child leaves the home because they've been getting something from their kids that they're not supposed to get their identity being wrapped up in being a parent of that child so identity amnesia i think is our greatest danger and the greatest threat to our walk with god and i think peter would agree with me because peter spends a lot of time in this book really it's a letter 
that he wrote to the, these people that were going through persecution there in the first century. And he writes a lot in this letter about their identity in Christ. In fact, we saw six things that he said about who they are in Christ back in chapter 1. Let me review that for you very, very quickly. In chapter 1, verse 2, he told them that they were chosen by God. That was a big part of their identity. Also in verse 2 of chapter 1, he said that they were sanctified. Holy is the idea there. And we noted that holy is being set apart for a singular purpose, which is to glorify God. And so they were holy. That's a part of their identity. In verse 3, he said that they were born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that that was a part of their identity. And in verse 4, he said that they were a people who had a glorious destiny waiting for them, a glorious inheritance in Christ. That was a part of their identity. In verse 5, he said that they were people who were being kept for that inheritance, for that glorious destiny by the power of God, that that was a part of their identity. And then in verse 18, he said that they were people who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So that was a part of their identity. And Peter will keep coming back to this theme over and over and over again in this letter. In fact, we're going to look at five more things that he says about who we are in Christ here in the passage that we read today. But I want you to remember, Peter is writing to a group of people who were suffering greatly. They were going through great persecution, and yet Peter keeps hammering home the reality of who they are in Christ. And I think he does that because Peter realized, he knows that in times of suffering, that our suffering can take center focus in our lives. And in that time of suffering, we can literally forget who we are. In fact, some people, they have a tendency to find their identity. They're defined by what they're going through or something that has happened to them, that they find their identity in being a victim. Other people find their identity in kind of their state of being, that they're in in a very in a specific time in their life, that maybe their identity is wrapped up in, I'm discouraged, or I'm depressed, or I'm angry. And they actually are finding their identity in those things. So identity amnesia, I think, is the greatest threat to our walk with Christ. It's when we find our identity in something else than Jesus. But here's another danger that's related to identity amnesia. And that other danger is this, and it's prevalent in our our Western church culture, and that's the danger of individualism. It's the danger of turning Christianity into some kind of individual or private pursuit. It's to turn Christianity into a Jesus and me religion. But I got to say this, that is not what we see modeled in the New Testament. No, in the New Testament, we are, it's modeled for us. It's explained over and over again that we have been called to a collective faith, that a faith that is all about relationships. So in the New Testament, it often uses phrases like 
the body of Christ and the bride of Christ and the temple of God and the family of God to remind us that our walk with God is in fact a collective community project. You see, you are not hardwired by God to do this alone. We have all been hardwired by God. God has made us uniquely to do this together. To do this walk with God. To do this in relationship with others. You are called to be a part of the people of God. And your health and usefulness will be connected to not just understanding that, but living that out. That's exactly what Peter is hitting on in the passage before us today. As I said, we're going to see five more things that Peter says here about our identity in Christ. However, what he's going to focus on today is not so much about who we are individually in Christ, but who we are collectively in Christ. And as we come to understand who we are collectively in Christ, it then gives us some insight into what our mission and purpose is as God's people. And these are two things that I am just passionate about as a pastor, is helping people to understand who they are in Jesus, and then what is their mission and and their purpose as being a part of God's family, their mission and purpose in the church, and then their mission and purpose in the world. And that's what we're going to see that Peter lays out for us today. Now, we looked at this passage last week, but our focus last week was on Christ, where Peter says there that Jesus is the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected that has become the chief cornerstone, the stone upon which the church of God globally is built upon. Jesus is the foundation. He's the foundation, the cornerstone of of what this church is built upon, and he is the rock upon which our lives are to be built upon as well. And today we want to consider how that relates to us, all of us, individually as well as collectively. So we're going to note five things that Peter says about who we are in Christ. Number one, we see there in verse five, he says that we are living stones. Now back in verse four, he said this, coming to him, speaking of Jesus, as to a living stone. And then in verse five, he says this, and you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now this is profound. It's one thing to come to a living stone. It's an entirely different thing to become, though, a living stone. And that's what happens when you give your life to Jesus and he brings you to life. That you become a living stone. That you become a part of the household of God. In other words, you become a part of something bigger than yourself. And that's the thing that God is always wanting us to understand, that he's called us to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. There's a great story about the ancient king of Sparta, who used to brag about the mighty walls of Sparta. And there was a king who had come to visit. He'd been hearing for years about the mighty walls of Sparta. And so he came to Sparta expecting to see these giant walls of the city, but none were to be found. And he said, where are these mighty walls of Sparta that you've been talking about? And the king pointed to his soldiers, his disciplined troops, and he said, they are the mighty walls of Sparta. 
Well, I think in a similar way, Jesus would look at you and I, and he would say, those are the living stones of the house of God. Those are the living stones that make up God's temple. Now, when you think about that, that should really affect our approach in in coming to church. That should really affect our, our mindset as it relates to being a part of the family of God. That we would realize and understand that, you know, we are a part of, of God's house that He's building. Each one of us is a, a living stone in that house. But oftentimes we forget that. In fact, you know, some people have a tendency to approach church the way they go to the grocery store. You know, when I go to the grocery store, I'm only thinking about my needs. I'm only thinking about, what's pick, about picking up what's lacking in our home. My wife gives me a list, and I go, and I'm on a mission you know, to, to get what we need so that she can make me dinner, <laughs> so she can make me something to eat. When I go to the grocery store, I'm usually not thinking about, yeah, I wonder what that person needs. I wonder why they're here. I'm not thinking about that. And oftentimes I go to the store and I want to get in and out as quickly as possible. I'm on a mission. If, the, if one of the checkout lines is a little bit long, I get agitated because that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to pick up the stuff and get on with my day. And so I go there. I'm thinking only about myself. In this day and age where we have to wear masks everywhere, when I go to the store, I, I kind of see that as a little bit of an advantage because it's hard sometimes to recognize people when they have their masks on, right? And so sometimes when I really don't want to be recognized, I put my mask on and a hat down over my head because I'm on a mission to get in and out. And some of you are thinking, Guy Pastor Rob, you're so selfish. You're the same way. <laughs> Come on, let's be honest, most of us. We're just like that. And you know what? That's the way some people approach coming to church and being a part of the body of Christ. They come with a mindset of, you know, I'm just thinking about my needs. I hope there's something, you know, that they can, you know, that happens that's going to bless me and help me today type of a thing. That they don't come thinking about, you know, engaging with others and ministering to others and being used in somebody else's life. And oftentimes we're thinking about, you know, I want to get in and out in the quickest amount of time possible. But listen, if that's how you approach being a part of the body of Christ, you are missing out on this tremendous truth that Peter's putting before us today, that we are living stones in the household of God. I love what Greg Laurie said recently. He said, the secret of the first century church The church that changed the world, the church that turned the world upside down, is the simple fact that every Christian believed that they were called to do their part. It's understanding that we all have a place and a function in this building that God is building that he's called us to be a part of. So the first thing that Peter tells us is that we are living stones. The second thing we want to note is that he says in verse 9 that we are a chosen generation. In the ESV version, it says a chosen race, which is probably closer to the, what it says in the original Greek language. Why don't you think about this? In Christ, you are a part of a new spiritual race. A new race of people. 
You know, right now we live in a time when DNA testing and discovering your DNA background is, you know, huge. It's really, really popular. Probably a lot of you have, have done that. I've heard some people are even doing that with their pets, you know, to find out their pet's DNA, you know, their dog's DNA, and um, more power to you, you know. But, but I want you to note here, Peter is not talking about the color of your skin, or where you were born. He's talking about what has happened in your heart. That being a part of a chosen race means that the great creator, the sovereign God, the King of kings and Lord of lords has chosen to place his eternal love upon you. How cool is that? How awesome is that? You see, your race is connected to being loved by Jesus. And that connection is what connects us to one another. That we are all greatly loved by our glorious Redeemer. And you are now a part of a group of people who by the grace of God have been made alive in God. And so because of that, you're different. You're different from the world. You're different from that person whose life hasn't been touched by the grace of God. And not only are you different individually, but we are different together. So he says here, we're living stones. We're a chosen race. The third thing we want to note, he says there in verse 5, we are a holy priesthood. And again, holy is meaning that we've been set apart by God for a singular purpose, which is to glorify him. But I also want you to notice in verse 9, he says that we are a royal priesthood. Royal priest means a priest whose service is to the king. And our service as priest is to the king of kings. And I want you to understand the point that he's making here is he's saying that we don't go to the temple. He's saying you are the temple. He's saying we don't go to priests. He's saying you are the priest. And as the priest, you have access because of the blood of Jesus Christ into the very throne room of God. So take advantage of that. Realize what a privilege that is. The fourth thing we see, also in verse 9, is he says that we are a holy nation. A holy nation. You know, when you meet people from other countries, or you see people from other countries, oftentimes it's easy to tell that they're from somewhere else, right? Because you hear their accent, and oftentimes their mannerisms are different. In fact, if you've ever um, gone down to the Carlsbad Outlet Mall, especially prior to, to COVID, you, know, you go down there, especially like on a Saturday, and you just could just have your ear open and you just hear a lot of different language. Some, for some reason, that's a place where people from other countries like to come and visit and, and they would go shopping here in our area. And it's interesting, you know, you watch people, like say somebody from Japan or China. I mean, they're usually very, very polite they're usually very, very respectful, and they're oftentimes very, very intelligent. I mean, it's like you, they kind of have that, that mark. You know, in my travels on mission trips, I've been to 23 different countries. And it's interesting in going to other countries because in other countries, there's a reputation that we as Americans have. You know what the reputation is that in a lot of countries that we as Americans have? They think that we are... Arrogant, loud, and disrespectful. 
That's the knock, you know, that the perception that people in other countries have of Americans. In fact, when we go on mission trips and take a mission team, we usually tell them, hey, listen, people in this country, this is what they think of us. They think that we're loud, that we're disrespectful, and we're arrogant. So we already have that going against us, so let's be the opposite of that. Let's make sure that we're being the opposite of that in what we're doing. But I ask you this question. What should be the reputation of this group that Peter says, you're a holy nation? What should be our reputation? What should be our reputation? Holy, remember, people who are set apart for the singular purpose of glorifying God. What should be the reputation when others look upon us of people who have been given that title by God, you are a holy nation? I think, to put it simply, it would be this, to reflect Jesus in every way possible. In every way that we possibly can. Which means, I think, that we have to constantly be praying the way that John the Baptist prayed or said of himself, I need to decrease so that he can increase. And we need to pray that. You know what? Yeah, you can clap to that. (laughs) You know what my biggest problem is for not being like Jesus? It's me. (laughs) It's Rob Salvato. (laughs) Rob Salvato needs to die. In fact, it's funny. My grandson... Josiah, who lives with us, he gets his D's and his B's mixed up when he talks. He calls me Poppy. That's my name. Don't you call me Poppy, but he calls me Poppy, okay? And when I'm leaving in the morning to go to work, I'll say, bye, Josiah, and he'll say, die, Poppy. And first time he said that, I was like, no, no, it's bye. And then it's like the Lord spoke to me and said, no, that's a great reminder for you every single day (laughs) is that you need to die. Die to you. Lord, I need to decrease so that you might increase. But you see how this description's building? Living stones, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, And Peter is wanting us to see that this identity is now, it's deeper than race, it's deeper than gender, it's deeper than language, it's deeper than ethnicity, it's deeper than culture, it's deeper than our social classes. And those are all the things that cause us to be divided in our culture today. Those are all the things that people in our culture are divided over. And what the Lord is saying here is that we have been given a new collective identity that levels the playing field and makes us all the same. That it doesn't matter our gender, our race, our language, our ethnicity, our social class. That if if I'm in Christ and you're in Christ, we're one. We're one in Jesus. The fifth thing that he says also in verse 9 He calls us his own special people. His own special people. A people, the ESV puts it this way, a people for God's own possession. A people that he has drawn close to his heart. That he's wrapped his his arms of grace around. Each one of us, and he says, you are mine. You're mine. 
You belong to me. I've sealed you, marked you with my Holy Spirit. You know, they would seal letters in those days. So you knew who it, you'd see that seal. Oh, I know who that, that's Rob's seal. I knew that it came from him. They'd seal packages that would go off on ships on the, when it reached their destination. You knew who it belonged to. God says, I've placed my seal of my Holy Spirit on your heart so that you know you belong to me. And here's what's amazing about this. God says, you know, you may be living right now in a broken down body that restricts your physical existence in the world. You may, you may feel like, you know, you're just not as useful as you used to be, but that's not how I see you. You're mine. You belong to me. You may be living in situations of trouble because we live in this fallen world and trouble is all around us. And God says, but you're mine. You belong to me. You may not be surrounded by an affirming group of people, but God says, you're mine. You may have a string of disappointments and failures that plague you from your past, but God says, that doesn't matter to me. I've paid the price for you. I love you, and you are mine. God says, I've taken you as my own, and I love you dearly, and I've got big plans for you. But it's not just us individually. Notice he says that we are his own special people as a whole. God looks at all of us. He says, you're mine. You're my people. Writer of Hebrews says this, he's not ashamed to call us his brethren. Some of you, I bet you, you had a brother or a sister or maybe a cousin that someone would say, isn't that your brother? And you'd be like, I don't know him. You know? Like you're ashamed you know, to identify. Jesus is not ashamed to identify himself with us. Isn't that awesome? We're his people. We're his family. Now I often say this, that the church is the family of God. But it is a dysfunctional family. Not going to lie about that. It's dysfunctional because we're all a bunch of sinners. We're, none of us have arrived. We're still you know, in that process of being transformed and, you know, by, by the Lord. So we are a dysfunctional family, but it's the best dysfunctional family around. It is. And if you're not a part of the family of God, I want to encourage you today to become a part of the family of God. That's wonderful. But this is what God says about who we are. And I want to encourage you, memorize this definition, this description, that you are living stones in the house of God, that you are part of a chosen race, that you are a royal priesthood, that you are part of a holy nation, that you are God's own possession, his prize, and then seek to live out that identity. To ask the Lord, Lord, what does this look like for me to live this out in my daily life? Because here's the thing. If you understand what your identity is, you'll also understand what your mission is. And that's, what, that's the other thing that Peter tells us about here. Not just who we are, but he also tells us what we're to be doing. What is, is our mission? In fact, look back at verse 5. He tells us here in verse 5, as priests, this is our mission, as a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What did the priests do in the Old Testament? They offered up sacrifices. 
And Peter says that we're to offer up these spiritual sacrifices. Well, what could that be? What would be these spiritual sacrifices that, that we are to offer up? Well, I think one of the first things that would classify as a spiritual sacrifice that we're to offer up is our own bodies. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul put it this way. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So basically, it's you coming to God and saying, God, here are my hands. Here are my feet. Here are my eyes, my ears, my mouth, my heart. God, I I present this to you. I'm placing myself, I'm giving myself to you as a living sacrifice. And I pray and I'm asking God that, that with these functions of who I am, these physical attributes of who I am, that I could bring you glory. It's placing ourselves upon the altar. But here's the thing about a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice is a lot harder than a dead one. Because as living sacrifices, we can squirm off the altar, right? We can find ourselves just, you know, wanting to do our own thing. And oftentimes it it looks like this. You know, we'll sit in a setting like this and we'll sing something like, I surrender all. When in reality, we're really saying, Lord, I surrender all except that. Except this thing in my life. Or, Lord, I, I surrender some. Lord, I surrender this, but not that. Sorry, you can't have that. But that's not being a living sacrifice. Being a living sacrifice is putting everything. It's all of us on the altar and saying, God, you can have all of me, every part of me. But you know what? It's broader even still, I think, than you know, eyes and ears and mouth and heart and our physical bodies. I think this idea of offering up your body as a living sacrifice really encompasses everything that you are, everything that you've been given. So it's offering up your home to God. Lord, I pray that this house, I give it to you, could be an instrument to be used for your purpose and your glory. It's offering up your possessions. Lord, I want to give you these things. I pray that these things would be a part, you know, things that you could use for your purpose and your glory. It's offering up your your money and your resources to God and saying, God, I want to give you this and pray, God, that you would could use this. And in fact, in Philippians chapter 4, Paul, speaking to the church in Philippi, said this about their giving, that it was an acceptable sacrifice that is well-pleasing to God. And here's a big mistake that we make about tithing. Oftentimes we think this in tithing. I'm going to give my 10% to God. That's what he asked for. And the rest of it, I get to do with whatever I want. But that's the wrong picture. You know, the right picture is really this, that everything you have has been given to you by God, that it really belongs to him. And he asks you to give 10% in the support of, you know, the local church and carrying out the mission of God in a community. But in reality, it's taking the rest and realizing, God, you've just called me to steward this. And Lord, help me to do that for your glory in a way that honors you. It's everything in our life. It's allowing our good works to be a sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16 says, do not forget to do good and to share for which such sacrifices God is well pleased. 
You can offer up your friendships to God. Lord, I pray that these friendships would be that which would stir up each other, encourage one another, and build up others. It's offering up your children to God, realizing that they don't belong to you. You know, if you're attempting to turn your children into little clones of who you are for your own reputation, you're going to be really frustrated because that doesn't work. But if you realize that, hey, these kids that God has given me really belong to him. And he's got a plan and he's got a purpose for their life. And part of what my calling is is to help them discover that and help them walk in that. That's offering up your children to God. You get the point. As a royal priesthood, we're called to let our uh, a life of, of we're called to live a life of sacrifice to our King, the King of Kings. A life where we're willingly offer up our gifts and possessions and strength and energy and resources for God's glory, that He would be honored in our lives. So that's, that's one part of our mission. That's one part of what we're called to, to offer up these sacrifices. Notice the second part of our mission is to proclaim his praises. Look at verse 9 again. He says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous lights. We're called to proclaim his praises. Now, how do we do that? Well, one of the ways is through worship, like we were doing today. That's one of the ways that we proclaim his praises. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 says, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of our lips. Now, why would praise be considered a sacrifice? I think one of the reasons is this, is because sometimes we don't feel like doing it. Sometimes we wake up in the morning and we just don't feel very joyful. Or we come into settings like this and we don't feel you know, very praiseworthy. But when it's a sacrifice of praise, we do it anyway because we realize he's worthy of our praise. He deserves our praise. He deserves that. And so we lift up our hearts and lift up our voices and lift up our hands because God is worthy of our praise. So that's one of the ways that we proclaim his praises is through worship like we did today, like we did Wednesday night. Man, Wednesday night was insane. It was such an incredible time of worship, and, and God's Spirit fell. I mean, all over the room, all night long, just people were in tears. It was just heavy what God was doing, but it was such a special time. About 250 people gathered here to just seek God and praise His name. I love those times that we have as a church in that way. The other way that we proclaim His praises, though, is in telling our stories. Like, look at verse, I want, you to, I want to read verse 9 to you out of the New Living Translation. It'll be on the screen. He says this, but, but you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness and into his wonderful lights. How do we proclaim his praises? We live it out. We show other people what it means to belong to God. It's seen in our priorities. It's seen in our pursuits. It's seen in how we treat others. And I think the world needs to see in us 
who are these living stones and this chosen race and this holy nation and this, this royal priest. They need to see in us people who are free, who are no longer in bondage to the things that so many people around us are in bondage to, that we've been set free from that, that we are free from bondage, but we're also fun. And we know how to have a good time in Jesus. They need to see us as people who are carefree and yet caring. And we care for others. They need to see us as people who are serious about the things that we need to be serious of, but also people who don't take ourselves too seriously because we realize that we're broken, that we're just recipients of His great grace. And I also want to read to you what he says in verse 10 in the New Living Translation. He says, once you had no identity as a people, and now you are the people of God. Once you received no mercy, and now you have received God's mercy. I love how he puts that. At one time, you were people who had no identity. Remember what that used to feel like when you were trying to find your identity? in something else, in someone else, and you were pursuing all these different things, and nothing would satisfy, and nothing would fill the emptiness, and nothing would bring you that place, of that sense of identity that you were looking for. That's the way most of the people around us are living on a daily basis, but not us. We have our identity. We know that we are who we are in Jesus. We know that we belong to him. We know that we are recipients of God's great mercy. The word mercy means not getting what you do deserved. And we deserved hell. We deserved judgment. But he didn't give us that. We've received great mercy. And we've received great grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And that's what God has done. That's that's who we are. We have this great identity in the Lord. And I want to encourage you. Tell your story. You have a story. You do. Some of you, your story is this, that Jesus saved you out of the pit. You were in the pit. You were in the muck and the mire. You were in the miry clay. You were all just covered by by the grossness of life, and you had made a mess of your life. And Jesus came, and he rescued you out of that. And that's your story. And it's a beautiful, wonderful story of God's redemption. Others of you, though, your story is not that he saved you out of the pit, but he saved you from it. That's my story. He got a hold of me before I would have ended up there. But I know, like Paul said, except for the grace of God, there go I. I know in looking at my life, I know that if God had not got a hold of my dad and saved him and delivered him from his alcoholism and changed his life, that that would have radically affected my life. And the path I would have went on. So I look and I go, man, God got old of me, saved me, Jesus saved me from the pit. But that's part, that's my story. You have a story. And I want to encourage you to tell your story. In fact, I want to challenge you in the coming weeks. Grab somebody that you work with, live by, somebody that you like is an acquaintance. Take them for coffee. Take them for lunch. Find a place that's open and, uh, and, and say, hey, you know, let, let's go get lunch or let's go get some coffee. And then ask them, hey, what's your story? Tell me your story. And they will. Most people love to talk about themselves. 
They do. <laughs> and so they'll tell you their story. And then they'll say, what about you? What's your story? And then that's your opportunity to say, well, let me tell you. This is who I used to be, and this is who I am now. And it's all because of Jesus. That's how we proclaim his praises. As we tell our stories. Guys, I hope you understand. Jesus has saved you. And he's brought you in to be a part of this amazing thing that he calls the church, the family of God. Don't, don't take that for granted. You know, there was a guy, a guy named Stan. He was downsizing, had a garage sale, sold a bunch of stuff. But one of the things he sold was a copy of the Declaration of Independence that had been hanging up in his garage for 10 years. And the guy bought it. And the guy who bought it discovered that it was actually a very unique copy. There were only a few copies of this particular copy of the Declar- Declaration of Independence, um, a few copies that were made in 1823. He bought it for $2.48 and sold it at an auction for over $477,000. And here's this guy, Stan, has this big valuable thing hanging up in his garage for 10 years. Has no idea how valuable it is. I pray that we wouldn't take for granted how valuable this is. And we can come together as the family of God. That God has called us to be a part of something that is special. And being a part of a local church. You know, I think prior to COVID, some of you took it for granted. They said the average Christian in America goes to church 1.3 Sundays a month. I think it's much higher than that since COVID. And I've had many of you come up to me over the months and be like, man, thanks so much for being open and I didn't realize how much I, I missed that. I remember the first couple times we were meeting outside and people just coming in tears. Something special happens when we come together, doesn't it? I pray we never lose sight of this. You know, we used to, to talk as our staff sometimes. We would say, you know, we'd go to retreat, men's retreat, women's retreat, or a youth retreat, and God just meets you in a special way on retreats. And we used to say, how can we bring that home, you know? Well, people go into retreats, I mean, they're paying money to go, and so they're there because they really, really want to be there. Well, you know what? In these last few months, we feel like we've experienced that many, many times because you're here because you want to be here. And you realize this is special, this is precious. And so there's a hunger. I see it when I'm preaching. Attentiveness. You know, sometimes I used to have to do this every now and then just to wake people up, you know. <laughs> Not anymore. It's encouraging. Let's not lose this, amen? May this appreciation for who we are grow in our hearts, grow in our, our minds. And may we find ourselves saying, God, just, Lord, show me what it means for me to live out being a part of your house, 
the house of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God, for this beautiful, wonderful description that you've given us today in your word of who we are in Christ. And Lord, I pray that each one of us would find ourselves today just rejoicing in this beautiful, wonderful identity that we, Lord, would be a people who would surrender all. That we would be those who would proclaim your praises in moments of worship as well as in telling our stories because you've done a great thing in saving some of us out of the pit and some of us from the pit, but Lord, you have redeemed us and you've set us free and for that we are so incredibly grateful. And Lord, today we want to just end our time together here as we sing a couple songs and just celebrating what you've done for us and the reality of what it means for us to be in Christ.